you got to you got to keep hitting people over the head with reminders because otherwise we fall back into our normal human behavior of being afraid to criticize or of shutting down an idea prematurely and all all of the rest. Hello and welcome to the Melting Pot. I'm your host Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. Today, I'm speaking with and learning from Amy Edmondson. She's chatting with me from her office at Harvard Business School, where she is a professor and she teaches on the MBA program. She's written a number of books and 75 articles and case studies. She's a global expert in organizational development. Her most recent book is The Fearless Organization. It's a practical guide uh, for leaders and teams within organizations intent on building psychological safety. And we chat about how the book came about and why there was such a gap between the paper she'd originally written and the book being published. Really, she got thrust into the limelight on the back of Project Aristotle. We also talk about what, what it takes for an organization to build great leaders and build psychological safeties. And I was reminded in some of our conversation about managers asking questions to an earlier episode I did with Gareth Chick, where he said, really, he works with SVPs at Google. And at that level, you can be promoted to a certain point by only asking questions to which you know the answer. But then if you really want to lead a diverse team and lead a team solving problems that you don't know anything about, you need to be curious and you need to learn to ask questions to which you don't know the answer. And so Amy and I chat a bit about that. And we get some really great practical tips from organizations that she studied in the field and from our own work teaching case studies to her students in the MBA program. How do you develop and role play psychological safety and developing as a leader. Fantastic conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm Amy Edmondson. I'm a professor at Harvard Business School, and I do research in organizational behavior, and I write things, and I teach, and I'm a person who loves ideas. Why or what do you teach? Well, I teach MBA students leadership and team effectiveness, right? How do you lead a team? How do you lead a good decision-making process? How do you engage and inspire people uh, to, to bring their full self uh, to work, to, to get the job done? It seems to me that that 
if you write that down, that's a bit like reading a book on how to ride a bike, <laughs> you know, sort of business being a full contact sport. Sure, so, sure. Fair enough. I, I, I couldn't agree more, actually. Um, and I do not think that I would get very far teaching this material through lectures. I'm not saying I don't give lectures, but I largely give those in other places. Um, in my classroom here at Harvard, I teach by the case method, which means students are responsible for reading a case, which is very factual without analysis, but a factual description of a managerial situation. And they come prepared to discuss it, to argue it, to figure out what to do in a, in a very action-oriented way, to be pushed back upon by me, by their colleagues. And so it is as close as you can come to being put in action without actually being in action, which makes it safer, right? Because they're, they're in a chair in a classroom where even if they make the most um, wrong-headed decision possible, you know nothing will really go wrong. It's like a simulation in that in that sense. And it, the case method is is that particularly a Harvard thing? In the business school environment, it is particularly a Harvard thing. We, in fact, it's exactly a hundred years ago. I can show you my little sticky note here where that we've got we're celebrating the one hundred years of the case method right now. Uh -huh. or the, it, it had been used, I think it's fair to say in law schools, the, the methodology is often case-based. You know, here's a situation, what precedents do you pull in yeah. to, to figure out what's the right legal thing to do here or the right case to argue. Similarly in medicine, the cases are more vignettes, right? They're a patient presents with these symptoms. What do you do? Because this is a better way, especially for adults to learn, probably for children also, but this is a better way, um, especially for adults because they have a lot of experience already and they need to perpetually learn how to draw from their own experiences to understand what's going on in a brand new situation. They, my students, certainly will do better building their own theory, generally replicating a theory that's well supported by research because I'm leading the conversation, right? So I'm leading them toward some basic principles that we can say are supported by data, but I'm not lecturing them on those data. I'm, I'm, I'm putting them in a situation where they can kind of discover it for themselves so that it's stickier. And also these things are never black and white. So the option is not. there for people to have some heated debate to learn to disagree without killing each other. Exactly right. And in fact, more often than not, the answers are not black and white, right? There, there are some things that are you know, facts and good principles and good practices, but but there's an awful lot of room for, for judgment and debate um, to figure out. You won't really know what worked until you try it. Uh -huh. And so why, why this job? You know, what choices do you make or what things do you pursue to get you to be a professor at Harvard? I would say my first answer to why this job is it seems to be the only thing I'm good at. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean, I have a particular, I have a strange combination of skills and proclivities. I am able to get up in front of a room of 90 students and lead a conversation that will inspire and push and challenge them. I am also a natural introvert. I really want to be um, I really want to be left alone to write stuff, right? That's what I'm good at. I love ideas. I love 
punching at them to try to get them stronger and tighter. And, and um, so if you think about like, what do you, and I love numbers. I love quantitative data and analyzing it and like being good at all three of those things or liking doing all three of those things is not ne- necessarily a natural skill set, right? I mean, not, you know, not that many people are sort of part ham, part introvert, part quant jock, right? <laughs> and, and that's really what you need to do to do this job. But h- how did I get here? Accidentally, uh, circuitously by um, doing different things that stumbled me forward into this into this position but you're now in the you're in your groove this is doing what you love doing yes indeed i've been here 25 years so i must i must love it fantastic before i became a professor at harvard business school i had never had a job for longer than three years which is not a super short time but but it always seemed uh, natural to change (laughs) when you got to that sort of three-year mark what were you feeling that made you well, I think I realized the obvious, which is um, this isn't a repetitive job. Right? I, in fact, not every year, but maybe every three years, I have a completely different job in this same job ah, right? because okay. I might have I might be teaching a different course. That's probably that's been mostly the case. Every few years, I teach something either very or slightly different. I have different PhD students. I'm working on different research projects, I'm writing different papers. So the, the the set of activities, teaching, writing, studying, getting out into the field to interview people, that set continues forward, but the content um, changes dramatically. So there'd be no, no, no sense of having the same job really for that whole time. Uh-huh. And, and when you were having different jobs and you were moving, what's the, you know, like how disparate were those jobs from one another are you what's the you know given where you are now what's the the least connected job in the past well probably the least connected job is the job between my first job out of college which was an engineering job and my second job was a job I gave myself which was to write a book about the work (laughs) of the first job and 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 so it was very different, right? Because in the first job, I was doing calculations and 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 um, engineering drawings and occasionally prototypes and and things. And then the second job, I was alone in my room writing a book. Um, and and in order to support myself, because I didn't that job didn't pay me anything since I gave it to myself. I got out to give workshops and um, occasionally to teach full semester math courses. And so that got me a little bit of income. So it was ultimately that juxtaposition of being a ham and then going back to my uh-huh. little page, you know, that led me to think, huh, that's kind of who I am. But then not didn't have exactly how to put that all together at that time. So the third job was a, a consulting job in, in an organizational development consulting boutique kind of firm, 100 people or so. And that was the job that ultimately found, helped me discover my content, right? People at work. Yeah. But the um, the first two jobs helped me deepen some of my skill sets and, and curiosities and questions. And worked out what you like doing and not doing. Yeah. 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 The day goes fast when you're doing what you like doing um, or like doing more. I mean, it's still work. It's still hard work, but in a, in a fun way. Yeah. 
And then the, the fourth job was basically being a PhD student, which is a job uh, and it's a good job and you get paid to do it, but it's um, open-ended. Like if you don't sort of figure out how to conduct original research at some point in that job, you don't stay yeah. in that job. The funding runs out and the project doesn't get published. Yeah. Yeah. And so was that PhD piece you did, was that the foundation for, for one of the books? Yes. Well, yes. I mean, actually, the fearless organization is really the direct result of my dissertation research. So 20 years earlier, but so you think, why did it take so long to write the book? Uh, and the answer is because I didn't know that it would be interesting to other people until Google said it was interesting to other people. And I mean that quite literally. There was a, a study done at Google called Project Aristotle. Um, you probably read about it, but it got a lot of press and yeah. very good with data, obviously. <laughs> That's their job. A small team there studied 180 teams over several years tested a very large number of variables to see what best explained um, per high performance or performance in teams. And the answer, at least the number one most important factor was psychological safety, which was what my dissertation um, discovered and tested. And, and so I, I thought it was a pretty good dissertation. It got published. My my paper on the dissertation, not the dissertation itself, but the paper that came, the number one paper, there were several, but the number one paper was published in the top journal in the field, right? So it was an academic success. But um, again, it, I didn't really imagine that too many other people would be interested in it um, until all of the attention, all of the interest on on the internet, all of the digital articles in the aftermath of the Google study suggested that there was interest. And so then that led me to make the decision to write the fearless organization, creating psychological safety in the workplace for learning, innovation, and growth. And it is, was sort of surprisingly um, pop popular. <laughs> <laughs> so for those people who haven't read that book, how do you create well maybe you define psychological safety first and then we have it's a, a chat idea. about then we have a chat about how you do it given the fact that google thinks it's important right exactly um so i i, I define it as um a belief uh, that one will not be penalized uh, for speaking up with work relevant information like ideas questions concerns and even mistakes um not mind you that that will be easy, but that one has confidence that it's welcome, right? That it's that it's valued, that it won't be penalized and held against you. And that sounds kind of obvious, like, well, it's work. Why would it be penalized and held against you? But people every day, day in and day out at work are holding back with relevant thoughts, feelings, worries, because they worry about what others think of them. A shorter way to say that, and maybe I should have started there, is it's a sense of permission for candor. Right? So it is it is not comfortable. It's not um, easy. It's not being nice. It's not uh, emotional acceptance. Right? There's a whole lot of things it's not. It's, it's permission for candor. And within the team that you work in? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I find it absolutely fascinating. And, and to try and get a sense in a team whether it exists, 
I often do the following thought experiment. I say, would you tell anybody in your team if they have spinach in their teeth? All right. Seems quite low emotion. True. And, and that's in a way the, I think that's the floor of psychological safety, right? I mean, cause how would I, how about, okay, I, I, I'll tell you, you have spinach in your teeth, but am I going to tell you that your project, the work you're doing on your project stinks? No. Right. That's a little harder. A, you know, that's the next level up, right? You're the expert. You can answer this question for me. Right. So typically I go spinach in your teeth Right, thirty percent of the people I do this with say I wouldn't tell wouldn't tell anyone on my team. It's too difficult for me to mention. Right, then is your fly down or have you come out of the toilet with your skirt tucked into your knickers? It gets to about fifty fifty at that point because the stakes are higher, right? And in a way, that's a more threatening or a more that's a more challenging topic. It is, but the stakes are higher, so you're more willing to do it. So what about bo and bad breath? I get to about 70 percent of people flat. Not going to mention it no to way. people they work with. No way. Yeah. But do you think work, the output of your work, you know, your project stinks? Is that, where is that? If that's a continuum, where do you think that fits? I suppose it depends, right? It, it partly depends on how the degree to which the output of your work is um, a reflection of your identity as a person, right? Are you making a widget or are you writing a novel? Okay. That person's emotional attachment to their work output. Yeah. If your novel stinks, it's sort of like that might be your very soul, right? That you, you know, I've just insulted inadvertently when really what I want to say is go, 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 but it's a little dull. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, I know you can do it, uh, but it's not there yet. So the weird thing is that I think we tend to think of, well, work, it's just work. Of course, it should be possible to be direct about it but in reality it comes a lot closer to your baby's ugly you know it feels that hard oh i mean i i was working with some clients recently and they made me the most nervous that i've worked with in a very long time i think that in the preamble i got the sense that they didn't like each other very much and that i think makes the emotional stakes even higher but one one of them said, I don't think you'll hear me speak because when I speak, I normally get shut down and I've just given up, which is sort of the opposite of psychological safety. It turned out to be not as bad as that, but... No, that's, that's, that would be a very good description of what low psychological safety is like. I mean, that's an, almost a survey item, right? If when I speak up, I get shut down, right? Yeah. That's, a, uh, that's a pretty good marker. What does your research suggest or what the, you know, when you're teaching your students, what do people need to do to build psychological safety? I, I say it's, uh, let's think of three. This is a little bit rough, but before, during and after. And so if we think of before, we're talking about stage setting kinds of things that one can do. Like um, we have never done anything like this before. And why would I say that? And it's, it's generally true, right? Or, you know, maybe, maybe, I mean, in some cases it's not true. And then we'll, we'll talk about something different, but let's say, you know, we've no, we haven't done this kind of project before. Why say that? Well, I say that because I'm explicitly pointing out that 
we don't have a formula. Therefore, we need you. So I call this framing the work. Like you're framing the work as in whatever way you want to say it, but as 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 technically in need of people's input. Just full stop, we need you, right? So it's it's novel. We've never done this before. It's high stakes or it's uncertain or it's um, it's going to take a lot of coordination to get it right. So you're trying to uh, set the stage as the kind of stage where people know that their input is welcome. But that's kind of like table stakes in a way. And maybe for extra measure, not a bad idea to point out the purpose, right? That sort of why, because all of the things that you and I have been talking about so far, whether it's the spinach and the teeth or anything else, are hard. So only we're only going to be willing to do it if there's a reason, like if it's sort of if it matters to us. So I think, you know, start with why sort of that, that emphasis on purpose really matters. So that's kind of stage setting. The during is ask more questions. And that's what you're doing. And and you're doing that because that's the venue we're in. You know, we're, we're, we're doing a, an interview. And, and so when you're doing an interview, you naturally think, well, I need to ask a question and then I need to listen to the answer. But in work, we don't have enough of that. It is, if you listen and record just regular team conversations, you'll hear frighteningly few genuine questions. Right? The kind of question you ask because you genuinely want to then hear what someone has to say. Um, and the good thing about genuine questions is that they make silence awkward. You say, Amy, uh, you know, how did you get into this job? And I sat here saying nothing. I would feel ridiculous and you'd be stunned. Right? It just doesn't happen that way. So why don't we do that in our team meetings? Like, why don't we sort of treat them more like opportunities to learn from each other? So the the during is really all about being proactive in in seeking and engaging input. And after, which isn't really after, it's more during, but is respond productively. And, and respond productively means you say something that maybe at first glance I don't really like or, or don't agree with, I have to have a productive response or, or I'm not going to hear from you again. And, and, and that's as a colleague or a boss, it doesn't matter. And the productive response is two things. It's appreciative and forward looking. You know, it's, that's interesting. Um, or thanks for that clear line of sight, right? It's a, it's, it, it acknowledges you, right? I heard it. And forward-looking is, how can I help? Where do we go from here? What ideas do you have? And I say forward-looking because the natural tendency is to look backwards. Sort of, how did that happen? Or why do you think so? Or what, you know, which isn't a bad question, by the way, but it's not, it can't be the first, your first reaction to something you don't like has to be, where do we go next? You know, how do we, how do we think about this differently? I'd like to know more about that. Um, what ideas do you have? How can I help? All of that. And when you're coaching, coaching's probably the, is coaching. That's probably the right word. Your students mm -hmm. on the MBA program. Yeah, I think so. Right. So you're running your casework with them. What what parts of that, or parts of learning to behave or create psychological safety, do people find the most challenging? Or maybe it's different people find different bits challenging. I was just thinking about, you know, introverts versus extroverts or. Well, I think technically the most challenging is 
the third one, respond productively. Because the first one, you can sort of plan, you can think about it. How am I going to start the meeting? How am I going to launch the project? You know, how am I going to make clear that I really, really value and want people's input? Um, I can make a sticky note to remind myself to ask questions, right? There's things that, but respond productively requires you to stop, breathe, you know, in, in the moment, right? In the moment, have a productive response when your natural inclination as a human being may not be to have a productive response, right? It may be to have a very counterproductive response. So I think that's the most challenging, but in the classroom, I would say the students, um, what's hardest for them is when we shift from, Oh, what might one do? You know, what should Dom do in this situation to, okay, do it. Role play that ups the ante, right? Because what happens is people start to, uh, they try to do the thing they're recommending that the protagonist do. And then they have to wrestle with the reaction, the real reaction of their colleagues who, let's say, have two students role-playing a difficult interaction of some kind. And then I can ask anyone in the class, like, what did you notice? What did you see? And you, they get to actually experience how you can inadvertently have an impact on someone you didn't mean to have and and then figure out you know how do I do that better right and you know how do I how do I um, phrase that better how do I listen better how do I how do I become more self-aware of my blind spots for example and it's it's amazing isn't it there's a human being you know we're doing a case in a classroom and so it's all completely made up, make-believe, right? And yet the emotional response that we get as human beings in that situation is exactly as if it would be real. And then you, you might be completely blind to the impact that you had, but you've got, you've got an audience giving you real-time feedback or you know, near real-time feedback, which could be, uh, I guess in some cases, can be quite difficult to hear. That's right. And I think that's why it's important to have set the stage Right, as a practice field, right? This is a place where we can take risks, where we can fall flat on our face and it won't matter, right? No patients will die, no planes will crash. And also that we, um, we're doing it, we volunteer to do it on purpose. Right, right. So it's that, you know. You're here to learn. Yeah, you know, I, I give you permission to give me the feedback. Right. Because I want the feedback. So whatever it is, let me have it. And so often that, I suppose that context isn't set in a team, you mm -hmm. know, um, you know, it probably is in high performing sports teams, but not so much in, you know, a team in a business, you know, most people haven't all worked in a, lots of people when I, when I question them, haven't spent time either in a high performing sports team or in what they would describe as a high performing business team. Right. They're living by an old set of rules, not, not a new set of rules. That's exactly right. I, and, and I think there are taken for granted sets of rules inside our head that shape our behavior that are drawn from the industrial era logic and don't suit us very well in the knowledge era work environment. Give me an example. Well, industrial era logic is the logic that says managers have answers, their direct reports are supposed to act on those answers, you know whether they did or didn't do it well, 
you check, right? And if they didn't do it well, it's because they didn't try, right? There's sort of an effort deficit. And so anytime you are responding to, let's say, an outcome, let's say something goes wrong, right? Let's say we don't make the sale. And my instant reaction is, yeah, you did a bad job, right? You didn't work hard enough. You didn't sell effectively enough. When a more thoughtful analysis is surely needed, and that may be the, something about the other person, something about their needs not being a good fit for your products, something about their company simply not having, or that individual simply not having the means to afford other things we sell. Like there's all sorts of reasons why a sale might not go through. That's a failure. We need to approach that failure with curiosity, with a kind of analytic, scientific mindset so as to learn. Yeah, it's, well, it, it, it's interesting because the manager having the answers, I see all the time, but I hadn't thought about it as an industrial age issue. I, the way I'd thought about it is that you get promoted to be the manager often because you're the subject matter expert. And, and nobody teaches you to be a manager. So the only thing you fall back on is because you're the subject matter expert. And so exactly. you get this sort of parent-child behavior sets up. I think that's half of it. And I think the other half is that knowledge keeps changing and growing and situations keep changing too, so that yesterday's answers might not work in today's project. Right? So, so you've got that combination of, you know, I got promoted because I had the answers yesterday, but now it's today. And if you're any good, you've been hiring people who are, you know, smarter or, or more up to date, you know, in, in, in their training than you. So your job now is to be the people, you know, the people expert. And as you say, very, very often you don't have that training. Yeah. Or well, your ego is linked to being the smartest person. So you haven't hired people smarter than you and you haven't developed your team and da, da, da. right. What's the best example of when you looked at firms in the field, you've got some great examples of companies that have built psychological safety what what are some of your favorites you know i i will answer that question but i need a little um that's your caveat you're caveating your answer yeah it's a caveat that's the word i was looking for thank you so here's my caveat the caveat is that in most organizations uh, it would be nonsensical to say is it or isn't it psychologically safe um, for the specific reason that psychological safety tends to vary significantly across groups within the same organization, right? So think back to the Google study that we talked about earlier in this program. The, it, it concluded that psychological safety was the best explanation for performance differences. That tells you one thing loud and clear, psychological safety varied, right? If it didn't vary across teams, it wouldn't have emerged as a predictive variable. Um, so what that means is that even in an organization like Google with a very strong corporate culture, right, a, a, you know, a robust and, and uh, reasonably uh, uh, diagnosable corporate culture, you get variance in psychological safety. And that tends to be the case for any company that's you know, larger than 20, let's say, um, certainly one that's larger than 100. But with that said, there are kind of a handful of, of exemplars we can point to and, and find pretty, because of practices they've adopted at the organization level, and find pretty consistently functional behaviors, right? Because they've taken the, the time to develop them. Pixar would be among my favorite examples. 
Um, you know, Pixar is a company where they're, they are engaged in creative work. It's creative work that has extremely high, sophisticated technical expertise uh, involved in it, computer science, you know, people at the very top of the of their game in computer science, um, creativity, storytellers, you know, artists, and and of course, solid business models and 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 business thinking, and all of those talents and skills have to come together in new and 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 wonderful ways to create each new product, um, and and so it's an organization that early on and consistently throughout has realized that we need to figure out how to make sure we're not shutting down dissent, critiques, ideas, all of the above. And so it's a combination of kind of leadership modeling of, of humility and curiosity and uh, you know the kinds of things that show you it is cool to be that way and structures, um, structures and systems and rituals like the brain trust uh, that is a structure used to convene people to kind of critique the movie being made with ground rules and all of, all of the rest. IDEO would be another example. On the wall are big signs that say, you know, defer judgment and no bad ideas. Like, why is that on the walls? Right? They already know all that stuff. If they're they're in the business of of innovating and you know failing fast and all the rest. And yet they're smart enough as social psychologists to know that you gotta you gotta keep hitting people over the head with reminders because otherwise we fall back into our normal human behavior of being afraid to criticize or of shutting down an idea prematurely and all all of the rest. Um, so those are two good ones. Um, there are many others. There are ones that aren't in the creative setting. Um, in the book, I I use the remarkable case study of, of Sully Sullenberger landing a plane in the Hudson and saving 157 lives after two engines had been knocked out by Canadian geese. There, again, scaffolding. You know, there's enormous work done to ensure high-quality conversations in the cockpit, particularly around problem-solving that rarely comes to, into play. But when it does, we really want absolute candor, absolute listening, absolute sort of engagement. And the airline industry worked hard at that. And certainly because in the past, that's been the thing that has right. been spotted to say, this is this has been the downfall. And and certainly watching the movie, uh, you know, you get, you get the view that, uh, you know, people trying to pick through it and dissect what went on and second guess decisions that were made in a split second. And you know, yeah. feeling sorry for him, really. You don't have to feel sorry for him because he's just a remarkable person who's had a remarkable uh, career and impact, um, including, not just including those three minutes, but but including um, all of the work that Captain Sullenberger had done at US Air to teach what's called cockpit resource management, crew resource management. They realize it's not just the cockpit, it's the whole crew to develop the right attitudes and skills for candor and teamwork and problem solving. Yes. Well, and in fact, it looks as though, you know, some of the, certainly some of the investigation into the, uh, the Boeing, the, 
what was it? The seven three seven max. Yeah, yeah. Some of that was about you know the training that the crew had had, or the 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 manuals that the decision making process that some of these crews were going through as the plane was yeah. stalling. It's a whole nother, um, I've written about it a little bit, but it's a whole nother sort of backdrop upon which that problem solving was taking place, which was the backdrop of almost, we, we would call it simply an accident waiting to happen of some faulty thinking in the design. Amy, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? That it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to fail. It's, you know, m- meaning it's okay to um, try things that don't work out. In fact, it's almost essential to try things that don't work out. And I, I say that, and I understand it pure, intellectually, I'm 100% on board with what I just said. But emotionally, it's still hard, right? We're, we're over, at least I was overtrained in the school system mentality of got to get the good grade. You've got to get it right. Um, you know, you've got to get the A, you've got to get the hundred on the test. Um, and that, the, that somehow is a reflection of what you're worth, which of course, nothing could be further from the truth because that, that mindset will lead you to take the easy classes, you know? Yeah. Well, all I, I see often when we're looking, when we're, when people are doing retrospectives, clients are doing project retrospectives, it's this project looked like it was green for a long time and then it went red at the end. And what people have done is they've done the thing they know how to do because they there's a bit of it that they're uncertain about and that uncertainty is fearful. So they sort of just kick it down the road. And then at the end, or, or why 65% of product launches fail? Because they didn't think about maybe selling it before they built it. They built it and then they tried to sell it. Right, exactly, and they don't, and they didn't. Um, they didn't speak up about those niggling concerns. You know that little ooh, doesn't feel quite right. But no one else, everyone, everyone else is okay, so must be fine. Maybe I'm just not smart enough. I don't understand it. What have you? Right. So, uh, but but I do think an awful lot of time and heartache <laughs> are are wasted because we aren't okay with or fallibility. Um, you know, we aren't, we aren't okay being fallible human beings, which we all are by definition. Indeed. Um, so as well as fearless organization <laughs> and teaming, <laughs> our organizations learn, innovate and compete. What, what else should people be reading? Do you think, what have you read along the way, or maybe you're reading something now? I love The Culture Code. I don't know if you've read it by Daniel Coyle. Um, it's just a gem of a book, right? It's a book about culture, about the, the power of corporate culture, why it matters, you know, how it shapes things. But it reads like uh, a good curl up with novel, right? It's just beautiful, beautiful writing, great stories, great stories of people in companies and situations that... Um, that make it a page turner, honestly. So I'm a huge fan of of that book. Another one, which is very, well, actually different in some ways, um, similar in others, uh, is a book called Leadership and Self-Deception. Do you know that one? No. It's by the, so it doesn't even have a human name. It's by the Arbinger Institute. <laughs> so it's, it's so humble, it doesn't even tell you its name. Um, and it is, it's a funny book because 
it's profound. Um, it's really, you know, the, the things that we've been talking about, you know, being okay with fallibility, being a good leader of people, being skillful at engaging people, at being curious, at understanding the impact you may be having, for better or for worse, on others. Um, it's all about that. Um, and it, it teaches some profound insights but in the form of a novel, right? So the, I'm not going to say that the novel is great fiction because it's not, right? But it's a, but it does make it a page turner, right? Because you want to find out what happens to Bud and what happens. So you 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 turn the page, but it's it's basically the journey of of someone learning to be a better person um, in in work in his in his role, um, and he learns because there's a good mentor who teaches him things. It's the kind of book that could change your life if you read it and and took it to heart. So those are two really good ones. A recent book I read by my my friend Chris Clearfield, uh, Meltdown and 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 Andres Tilsik. Andres is a uh, alumnus of our PhD program and a professor at uh, Rotman at University of Toronto now. Uh, and this is just a a really engaging book about complexity and the and the sort of rise of um, complex failures oh well there's two i haven't read marvelous i thought all three you hadn't read or you had read the culture code i think i've read the culture code i'm pretty sure okay. i've read the culture fair code. enough yeah but uh but the other two not at all so that's fantastic good amy thank you very much indeed for coming on and talking to me today it's been an absolute pleasure been a pleasure talking with you thanks for having me Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.